Welcome to the Discover Church Podcast. We are a Christian faith community based out of Denver, Colorado. Join us this week as we bring our uncertainties to an unchanging God. If you have any questions about the sermon, please feel free to send them in. You can email them to us at hello at discoverdenver.church. Good evening. How are you this evening? You doing okay? All right. Summer has clicked all the way in. I can see from the reddish hue on some of you that you do not use suntan lotion. But uh, I am really, really happy to be here tonight. We are going to be continuing in our series on Revelation, which uh, happens to be one of those books that people uh, highlight in Black Marker. Did you get that? You didn't? I'm just seeing if you're there. Uh, in black, because I, uh, people have had really weird experiences reading that book. Have you read that book, Revelation? It's not Revelations, by the way. It's Revelation. Um, and depending on the church that you grew up in, you may have had some really strange, traumatic things happen as well. Um, uh, maybe you grew up in a church that you were told that uh, Russia was fulfilling the end times prophecy, and they were about to invade any moment, clicking in the calendar. Did anybody grow up in a church like that? Yeah, four of you that will admit it publicly. Okay. Or the European Union uh, marked the, uh, the beginning of the Antichrist reign. Anybody hear that one? That's, that's a good one. Yeah. Um, my wife was raised in a church like this. See, I wasn't raised in church. Well, my wife was raised in a church like this where she heard all this crazy, there were like these uh, movies that came out too that were like pretty much just intended to scare you, um, you know, literally scare the hell out of you. Go to heaven. Okay, so wasn't wasn't cussing. I was actually saying something. So, so anyway, and so it created all this fear in her. Um, she has this great story of taking... Uh, a pizza out of the oven with like a pizza stone. And she heard a huge blast sound, um, like big horn. And because she'd been watching these movies and heard somebody teaching on Revelation, the end was near, she, uh, she thought it was the trumpet. So she dropped the pizza stone on the ground that left a big burn mark on the floor forever and started running around the house looking for her family only to discover they weren't there. So she was convinced. What was she convinced? She's been left behind. Yeah, it was uh, traumatic. And if you were raised in anything like this or saw any of these movies, it creates a whole bunch of fear and confusion. And so over this summer, our intention is to try to make this as clear as we possibly can and demystify a lot of what's going on. Um, Many of you have great Bible reading plans, like you read the Bible really faithfully every day, every couple days. You have like a whole plan, maybe to read through the Bible in a year or something like that. Um, if you have one of those, I'm really happy for you. Most people don't. Most people are kind of confused about how to read the Bible, even if you've been in church your whole life, and especially confused by a book like Revelation. Like you just skipped that part in the reading plan. So over this summer, we're working with an app that's called Read Scripture. Have any of you pulled that app down, grabbed it, any of you? So five of you. Okay, so 
So the rest of you, you maybe have a great plan. If you don't, I would highly recommend this app. Um, it's run by a group called The Bible Project, and they go book by book, and it's really clear teaching. There's great videos that go with it that help you think your way through different books of the Bible. So we're going to be mirroring that app as we do this series. So if you're not here, you can still kind of keep up with where we're at in the Bible and where it fits on uh, in with the app, as well as you can listen to the podcast. But I want to show you the video. I want to show you the video. I'm going to show you the video right now. There it is. I'm going to show you the video from the Bible Project that leads us right up to the text that I want us to look at and focus in on uh, right now. I'll give you a taste of what the app does. Let's watch that. And there's no volume. Sound guy has departed. Can you start it over? Do you mind? So let's start that all over. Hi, my name's Jay. No, here we watch. The book of the Revelation of Jesus. The author of this book, which is not called Revelations, by the way, is named at the beginning. It was written by John, which could refer to the beloved disciple who wrote the gospel and the letters of John, or it could be a different John, a messianic Jewish prophet who traveled about and taught in the early church. Whichever John it was, he makes clear in the opening paragraph what kind of book he has written. He calls it, first of all, a revelation or apocalypse. The Greek word is apokalypsis, and it refers to a type of literature very familiar to John's readers from the Hebrew scriptures and from other popular Jewish texts. Apocalypse is recounted a prophet's symbolic dreams and visions that revealed God's heavenly perspective on history and current events so that the present could be viewed in light of history's final outcome. And John says this apocalypse is a prophecy which means it's a word from God spoken through a prophet to God's people, usually to warn or comfort them in a time of crisis. By calling this book a prophecy, John's saying that it stands in the tradition of the biblical prophets and is bringing their message to a climax. And this apocalyptic prophecy was sent to real people that John knew. The book opens and closes as a circular letter that was sent to seven churches in the ancient Roman province of Asia. Now, seven is a meaningful number for John, It's a symbol of completeness based on the seven-day Sabbath cycle in the Old Testament, and John has woven sevens into every single part of this book. Now, with this opening, John has given us clear guidance about how he wants us to understand this book. Jewish apocalypse is communicated through symbolic imagery and numbers. It is not a secret predictive code about the timing of the world. Rather, John is constantly using these symbols that are drawn from the Old Testament, and he expects his readers to go discover what the symbols mean by looking up the text he's alluding to. Also, the fact that it's a letter means that John is actually addressing the situation of these first century churches. And so while this book has much to say to Christians of later generations, the book's meaning must first be anchored in the historical context of John's time, place, and audience. Which brings us into the book's first section. Jesus' message to the seven churches. John was exiled on the island of Patmos, and he saw a vision of the risen Jesus, exalted as king of the world. And he was standing among seven burning lights. And John's told this is a symbol of the seven churches in Asia Minor that's been adapted from the book of the prophet Zechariah. And Jesus starts addressing the specific problems that face each church. Some were apathetic due to wealth and affluence. Others were morally compromised. Their people were still eating ritual meals and sleeping around in pagan temples. But others among the churches remained faithful to Jesus, and they were suffering harassment and even violent persecution. 
And Jesus warns that things are going to get worse. A tribulation is upon the churches that will force them to choose between compromise or faithfulness. By John's day, the murder of Christians by the Roman Emperor Nero was past, and the persecution of Christians by Emperor Domitian was likely underway. And so the temptation was to deny Jesus, either to avoid persecution or simply to join the spirit of the Roman age. And Jesus calls them to faithfulness so that they can overcome or literally conquer. And Jesus promises a reward for everyone in these churches who does conquer. Each reward is drawn directly from the book's final vision about the marriage of heaven and earth. And so this opening section, it sets up the main plot tension that will drive the storyline in this book. Will Jesus' people endure? Will they inherit the new world that God has in store? And why is faithfulness to Jesus described as conquering? The rest of the book is John's answer. After this, John has a vision of God's heavenly throne room. He describes it with imagery drawn from many Old Testament prophets. Surrounding God are creatures and elders that represent all creation and human nations, and they're giving honor and allegiance to the one true creator God who is holy, holy, holy. In God's hand is a scroll that's closed up with seven wax seals. It symbolizes the message of the Old Testament prophets and the sealed scroll of Daniel's visions. These are all about how God's kingdom will come here fully on earth as in heaven. But, it turns out, no one is able to open the scroll. Until John hears of someone who can. It's the lion from the tribe of Judah and the root of David. He can open it. These are classic Old Testament descriptions of the Messianic king, who would bring God's kingdom through military conquest. Now, that's what John hears. But then what he turns and sees is not an aggressive lion king, but a sacrificed bloody lamb, who's alive, standing there, and ready to open the scroll. Now, this symbol of Jesus as the slain lamb, this is crucially important for understanding the book. John's saying that the Old Testament promise of God's future victorious kingdom was inaugurated through the crucified Messiah. Jesus overcame his enemies by dying for them as the true Passover lamb so that they could be redeemed. Because of the resurrection, Jesus' death on the cross was not a defeat. It was his enthronement. It was the way he conquered evil. And so this vision concludes with the lamb alongside the one sitting on the throne, and together they are worshipped as the one true creator and redeemer, and the slain lamb begins to open the scroll. It's a symbol of his divine authority to guide history to its conclusion. There's a lot there, isn't there? Uh, so there's a lot going on that I imagine most of us would not have been able to recall by memory, but that's why it's really helpful if you work your way through bit by bit. What I want to do with just a little bit of time we have is uh, think through a question I asked my dad. I can vividly remember asking my dad this question when I was 12 years old. I had just finished being in a history class uh, where we learned about Genghis Khan. Remember Genghis Khan? Maybe you remember that from history? Genghis Khan, good guy or bad guy? Pretty bad dude. And I remember learning about his conquests, murdering people, slaughtering people, all this awful stuff. And then I was just comparing it to like all this other history I'd been learning in school. And I remember asking my dad, why, why is it that history is always told about awful people who do awful things? Why do we learn history only in relationship uh, to wars and conquerors, murderers? And I'll never forget what my dad said. He said something that I think probably most people believe. He said, well, it's really simple. 
because the powerful always win. History is told in our schools today about military rulers and economics and ways that people use power to get done what they want to get done in the world. And that your history class, I mean, I for a long time thought the History Channel was just the World War II channel, right? I mean, it was just like all World War I and II, and uh, they adapted, I think, because people got tired of that. Uh, now they have, like, ancient aliens. That's, inter- that's interesting. Anyway, but you can tell they're, like, markets closing up on never-ending war stories. But the truth is that's probably how you learn history, isn't it? How nations were formed, how economies and technology were used for powerful people to enforce their will on others. This is especially relevant in relationship to reading Revelation because, as we just saw a moment ago, the believers that John is writing to are under the thumb of the power of Rome. He mentioned there uh, that some commentators believe that this book may have been written in the time of Nero as emperor. Others uh, think it's Domitian. I happen to believe from my own study it's an early date, which would be Nero uh, was the emperor. And so since that's what I believe, it is so. No, I'm just kidding. I, you can do your own research. But I think, I think it was in the time of Nero. And Nero was an especially evil, horrible emperor. If you've never studied Roman history... Nero was rounding up Christians and killing them in the most horrific ways imaginable. Um, One of his favorite ways was to find a person who was following Jesus, that had given their life to Jesus, said that they believed that Jesus died and rose again for them, and he would try to get them to recant their faith from all the Roman power. If they wouldn't recant, he would dip them in oil put them on a stake alive in his parties and light them on fire. They were the torchlight for his outdoor garden parties. It was a way of him saying, we have power, you do not. You must come under the thumb of Rome or we will humiliate you in front of everyone and take your life. Imagine being one of these early believers. Your friend was just killed. Your mother was torn apart in the Colosseum by an animal. It would only be reasonable to to ask, is this worth it? What are we doing? I mean, why are we holding so fast to this faith in Jesus? We don't have the power required to do what we need to do to make a difference in the world. We can't make it. We should just maybe find little ways to compromise, right? Like maybe we can worship Jesus in private and then sort of salute the emperor in public. Maybe that's a way to sort of manage this. We can pretend like we worship the Roman gods, including the emperor, but really we'll know we follow Jesus and we'll do that in secret, but publicly we'll be different. Can't you see how there would be never-ending opportunities for compromise and it would seem completely reasonable because they find themselves to be people that don't have power or influence and frankly, they want to live. It's in that context 
that this letter comes to them, this vision. And I want you to keep all that in your mind as I read this little section from Revelation chapter 4 and 5 because it makes complete sense of what John is doing and why this picture in Revelation is so valuable because, frankly, it's still true for us today. I'm sure you feel like you have someone in power over you. You have a boss. Nobody here has a boss. Wow, you guys are doing great then. Uh, you probably have a boss. You might have a teacher. You might feel like a parent has control. And you might think, this isn't fair. Uh, you can pick your favorite news outlet to see how people are interpreting the powers of our government presently. There's conflict and tension and frustration. And this is what John wants to say in the middle of that. In Revelation 4, listen to this. It says, after this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once, I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. Just pause there. So John has already had this kind of ecstatic encounter in, in Revelation 1 through 3. And here now, he says, in the middle of this kind of crazy encounter, this vision he's having, a door opens in heaven. And a voice says, come up here. He's quite literally going to transition into another dimension. He's going to see what heaven looks like, what's going on all the time, he's invited into. Some of my um, friends that uh, study physics or in different kinds of um, disciplines like that talk about this in relationship to string theory, the idea that there's many dimensions that are right alongside of one another. And it's as though a door, it's such a powerful image, a door opens and he walks into a different dimension where he stands in the throne room where God is. Now, what you're about to see is John fumbling around for words. Listen, listen to how he tries to see all of these majestic things as he is in the throne room of God, but he's fumbling for words. Listen to how he describes it. He says, And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like emerald and circled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. And they were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass clear as crystal. You get the impression John's seeing something he can't quite get his words around, right? Like, have you ever had that experience? Something that's so beautiful, it's so majestic, you go to tell somebody later and you just can't? Uh, like, have you ever been to the Grand Canyon? Who here has been to the Grand Canyon? And you stand in front of the Grand Canyon like, what is this? And you go home and someone says, Grand Canyon, what was it like? Well, you've seen a hole. Imagine like a really big hole. And it's, I mean, like bigger, like the biggest hole ever. 
And then at the bottom of the hole, there's this river. But it's so small from up top. It's amazing. And you hear that and you go, not, not so amazing. That's, people talking about the Grand Canyon. That was like a terrible description. And then you see the Grand Canyon. And oh, this is majestic. This is so beautiful. It's breathtaking. And you go home and someone says, what was it like? And you find yourself saying, it's like, it's like a big hole. Like you just can't get the words to encapsulate what it looks like, what it feels like, how small you are in the presence of something so majestic. And don't you hear John fumbling around like this. By the way, all of Revelation feels this way. He's fumbling around. He's saying things that are really bizarre. And if you've ever seen art that tries to depict Revelation, it's always like super like creepy. Like when he describes like these beings that have eyes all over their body, even inside their body, it's like, ooh. He's, he's trying to get us to picture something that frankly we just can't picture. But here's what he is saying for sure. This is what he's doing his best to describe. Is that in the midst of all the powers of the age, the Roman powers, the economic powers, there is still a throne. And God is on that throne. And he is still in charge. And that no matter what else is happening, you need not fear, for God is alive. And he's still worthy to be worshipped. And he's majestic and beautiful and powerful and glorious beyond your imagination and beyond description. John wants to step in in the middle of all this pressure and all this pain and say, do not be afraid. For God is still on his throne. Do you think that's a relevant message today? think it's relevant in light of all the political fear we have right now? I think it's relevant because when you think back in the first century, he's talking about Rome, which seemed unbelievably powerful and then it would never lose its power. And now we name our dogs Nero and we eat Caesar salads. Right? I mean, what's Rome? That power has passed away, and yet, this very day, this very morning, in about every language you can imagine, people are worshiping Jesus Christ all over the world. What John said has come to pass. God is in charge. He is powerful beyond measure. Do not allow the fears of the powers of this age to blind you to the reality that there is a God, and he is good, and he reigns over everything. Now, he's going to drop this picture all the way down in. In chapter 5, says this, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. When I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? Again, pause here. John assumes you know the Old Testament, you have it committed to memory, and when he refers to things, you're going to be like, oh yeah, that's from Isaiah, that's from Zechariah, 
That's from Daniel. He thinks that he's talking to you in a language you understand. All of these are references and pictures from the Old Testament. The people of God knew that God had a plan and a purpose, and the way that that was often de depicted in the Old Testament was as a scroll, that God had written out what he was going to do, and at the right time, he would unroll it and unleash his purposes on the earth. What he wanted to do would come to pass. And so when John sees this scroll and he sees the seals, the right question, of course, is who's going to open it? How do we get this going? In the midst of all this oppression and all this pain and all this torture, who's going to make this right? Who's going to set in motion the plan of God to bring his kingdom? And the angel asks, who's, who's worthy? And you can imagine a whole, you have this whole crowd of people, who's worthy? And everyone kind of looks around like, I don't know, who, who's going to walk up to the, the throne with peals of thunder rolling off of it, lightning firing out? Who's going to go up there and try and open that scroll up? People look around. I don't know who's worthy. And they're, they're looking around, they're looking around. And here's what it says. It says, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll, even look inside of it. And John begins to weep. I wept and I wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. But, verse 5, then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And so this elder whispers to John, says, don't worry. The lion of the tribe of Judah, he will walk up and he'll open the scroll. And you can imagine John going, I've heard about this. This is the warrior king who will come and destroy the enemies of God. We've been waiting for this. We've been waiting for this army to be raised that will kill the Romans. This is it. Here we go. And he's looking around for like William Wallace from Braveheart. Where is he? Where's his horse? Where's his sword? Where's his shield? Where's his weapons? Where's the army? And he's looking and he's looking. And what does he see? Then I saw a lamb looking as if he'd been slain, standing in the center of the throne encircled by the four living creatures. The one that can open the scroll is Jesus, who died and rose again. There's no warrior. There's a bloody lamb. And the bloody lamb is the one who has been victorious. It's in this death that he conquered. It's quite a plot twist. Not something anybody was anticipating. Not anyone as they put Jesus on the cross. Not anyone as they saw him raised from the dead. And you can see it even now for John in the throne room. Wait a second. Jesus fulfills all of that? This is why it is entirely bizarre when people who love and follow Jesus hope to get power to bring about God's kingdom. Because what the Bible is teaching us is, is that the power of God is different than the power of this world. The power of God does not look to usurp and demand and kill and force. But the power of God is brought to bear through sacrifice and suffering. That's why it's so confusing when our brothers and sisters in Christ are like, if we could just get the right people elected, we would have the power and then we could bring about what we want to do in the earth. If we could just get the right economy working and get enough money, then we would get the power and we could do what we want to do to people because that's what Jesus wants. 
No, no. Turn and look. Who's worthy? The lamb that was slain. The one who gave everything. And in this, John is saying, this is why it's so powerful for you and me to be people who sacrifice, for we have a power that's different. The kingdom is different than the kingdoms of this world. So it's this triumphant moment. And here it is, verse 7, it says, He went and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And we had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. Pause there. It don't think harp like from the cartoon with like that kind of gentle. That's not it. This would better be described as a banjo. It's closer to like what uh, this instrument denotes. So imagine this. The lamb appears. He goes to grab the scroll. And all of a sudden, banjo players rise out of the stage. And they start playing. Because it's about, it's about to go down. Because it's like growing. There's like a build. All these banjo players playing in time. And then this is what happens. As they begin to sing, or as they begin to play, they now sing. They sing a song and it says, You are worthy to take the scroll to open its seals because you were slain. Listen to this because this talks about you. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe, language, and people, and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. They're singing, and a worship service has started. And they're celebrating that God's purposes are going to be brought to bear through Jesus Christ, through his sacrifice. A wall has been broken, and God has reclaimed for himself a people that now will bring life and hope to the world. And it doesn't stop there. As soon as they get done singing, listen to what happens. It says, Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels Listen to this, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. All of a sudden, angels start flying through the place. And they're whirring around John in the middle of this throne room. And listen to what, it, what, listen to what happens. In a loud voice, they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. This is an exciting room. There's banjos and shouting and singing and lightning. and There's a lot happening in this room. And then I heard every creature in heaven on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. That's all the elders do over and over. They stand up and they fall down. They stand up and they fall down. It's like at every moment something happens. You're like, oh my God, this is incredible. Fall back down on your face and worship. Now here's what's amazing about this passage. It doesn't come through in the English. Every single verb form, every single description of John is in the present tense. It's not in past tense. Everything I read here, right? It's all in the, it's in past. Then I looked, then I heard. That's not exact, that's not how it's written. It's written, and I see. And now I hear. And what John is saying is, this is happening now. Right now. 
that the angels are swirling around. And, and the elders are crying out, and the banjos are playing, and the place is going crazy. And he's saying, this is the locus of power. This is what we worship. This is where you point your eyes. Don't look at Nero. Don't look at Rome. Don't look at the Republican Party. Don't look at the Democratic Party. Look at Jesus, the lamb who was slain, who was worthy, who purchased you and bought you to worship him, to give your whole life to him. For he is majestic and beautiful and glorious and worthy of your worship. I don't know if that's how you think when you show up to worship, like where we sing songs here. You know, like we just did it a minute ago. We're about to do it again. Do you, do you see that we are stepping into a worship service that's always going on? And may God give you eyes to see and me eyes to see. And the way John saw, it's like all of a sudden he just saw through. He went, this is what's happening. This is what we're called into. This gives us power to resist evil, to not be afraid, to deal with temptation. Because this is real, says John. This is what's happening. Come and worship. Come and worship. And I pray for you. We're just going to go right into a worship song. I pray that maybe by miracle, God opens some of our eyes right now. Too often we walk into a worship service and we worship and it's like, Chipotle or Qdoba after this? Chipotle, Chipotle, Qdoba, Qdoba, Chipotle. John's saying, lift your eyes. Wake up. You're being called into something that will go forever. So let's worship. Why don't we stand? This is a song that was written that was taken right out of these passages in Revelation, some other ones. Now let me pray for us as we move to worship. So Holy Spirit, we acknowledge your presence in this room and we say, speak to us. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, that we might see you. That we might see through all of the junk that surrounds us. That we could worship you, the one who is worthy of all honor and glory and power. Thank you, Lord. Let's worship together.